0: Al, to most of you, needs no introduction. I'm sure that a great many of you know of his work in the fellowship, that in 58 he was a trustee, and he didn't get a resentment being a Class B trustee. He survived that, and he's still with us. Alan, being with us today, has gone through considerable pain, a little inconvenience to himself, but he still made it. He had an impacted tooth that started when he got on the train to get down here and has been treating it, and at 7 o'clock this morning, he got the go sign. So here he is. Alan, they're all yours. Thank you, Bob. Governor Combs, may I thank you for being made a Kentucky colonel. That's uh, really one of the things I have always wanted to do. Uh, for different reasons now than formerly. power. And after hearing your uh, story about the little girl, I didn't... And I know of no other way to go about an assignment such as this than to tell you standard AA formula, what I used to be like, what happened, and what I'm like now. I understand from the program also that this particular meeting is open to the general public, and I hope there are some of the general public here, because we alcoholics need all the friends we can get. We need all the understanding that we can find. And I was very pleased to hear not only what the governor reported about what's going on here in Kentucky, but his own personal attitude towards alcoholism was manifest in not only what he said, but the way he said it. And if you are a so-called outsider... I shall hope during the course of the next little while not to tell you how AA works. I can't do that. But maybe I can show you how some things happen to me that you will be able to interpret for yourself. I started life in a perfectly normal way, normal childhood as far as I can remember, a very happy one. I came from a good, decent family, I had a reasonably good education, I started in the business world with some degree of promise. And there was nothing on my horizon at that point that would have singled me out as an alcoholic. But evidently there must have been something missing. I still don't know what it was, and it's of little consequence that I don't know what it was. What I'm trying to say, I guess, is that there doesn't have to be any monumental cause for alcoholism. A minor maladjustment can do it. I started drinking in the early days of Prohibition when it was kind of smart to not only drink but get a little drunk now and then. And I think that's all there was to it, man, just sort of a smart-aleck Uh, escapade. But as time went on, and I found myself being surrounded by people who drank as much or more than I did, it was very difficult for me to believe that anything strange was happening to me. Because everybody that I seemed to see uh, did the same things I did. However, there came a time in this business life of mine when, at the end of the year, when I thought I'd done a particularly good job. My boss called me in, I was sure, to give me a pat on the back and a substantial raise in pay and some more responsibilities. Instead, he gave me only a token raise, admitted grudgingly that I had done some pretty good work during the year, but I had some of the responsibility I already had taken away from me. And with all that came a carefully worded lecture from a man who was not only my employer, but my friend. He tried to explain to me why he and the rest of the the management of this advertising agency in New York didn't feel free to entrust me with the affairs of their clients. He didn't use such words as alcoholism. I don't think he knew that word in those days. He didn't call me a drunken bum or any such thing as that. He just hinted that I ought to make some changes if my career were not to suffer and if I were to be, in the full sense of the word, trusted. I reacted to this in what I now know to be a completely alcoholic way. I chose to forget that this man was my friend as well as my employer. And I said to myself, who in the hell does he think he is to tell me what to do with my private life and my private time? Now, I'm sure it will surprise nobody in this room when I tell you that the same man, less than a year later, called me in, and this time he didn't choose his words so carefully. He all but called me a drunken bum, and he fired me. And that was the first of a long line of lost jobs in this so-called career of mine. The jobs kept getting less and less in quality, further and further apart, and of shorter and shorter duration when I did get them. During the course of those those years, I think I was fired by every known means of communication, with the possible exception of carrier pigeons. Because I finally became the kind of a employee who would go to lunch on Wednesday along about twelve fifteen and not get back till the following Monday. And even with the most lenient of employers, that's too damn long a lunch hour. I could take you over those same years and show you how a family life started out with great promise had come apart at the seams at the same rate and of course for the same reason. I was the father of two children, both girls, and they, little by little, became the victims of my frustrations. I, a fairly peaceable person, became a child beater and a wife beater. because my wife and children became just about the only people left in this world whom I could still lick. And in the meantime, life was doing so many things to me, and I was so overwhelmed by what was happening and so frightened by it all that frustrations would well up in me, and I had to strike out at something, And it was on those terms that the person I always thought had been a decent one and a quiet one became a violent one. My wife left me for the first time when I came to out of a blackout, which by this time was a normal, everyday thing in my life, There hadn't been any arguments or any fights or anything, but I came to, and there she sat. Not so much a person as a symbol. A symbol of the wife that I should have protected and cared for. A symbol of the mother of my children. All of them mocking me. So I think I tried to destroy her as a symbol rather than a person... I attempted to stuff her through a nine-story apartment window. Unfortunately, there were some other people there, and I was stopped. My wife, being altogether not the fool, packed up the kids and got out. And then I was left to make a decision of sorts. I had to take a sort of inventory. Not the one we referred to in our fourth step, but another and somewhat more desperate kind of inventory. Because the apartment we were living in, the food I was eating when I ate, and the liquor I was drinking, was bought with money that my wife was either earning or borrowing from her family. So when she, was, she left, I was left with no resources, whatever. So I sat down and attempted to figure out the next step. And much to my horror, I discovered that I didn't have a friend left in this world. That I had literally used up every person who had ever attempted to be a friend. And at that point, there was only one person left on the face of this earth that I could appeal to. And that was my mother out in Cleveland, Ohio. I wired her for money to come to Cleveland. And she had to send bus fare three times before I finally actually got on a bus and went. And when I got there, she laid down some pretty strict ground rules. She said, you're welcome here as long as you don't get drunk. If you ever get drunk, don't step across that threshold. This was the last roof as far as I know that I could find shelter under. I was scared, and the only defense I had was the the, the odd kind of arrogance that uh, an alcoholic develops as his very last shred of defense. So I played it cozy. I was incapable of working at all by this time, so the only chance I had of getting drunk was waiting around one of the Huff Avenue gin mills out there for a live one to come along. And if I caught one uh, with a little dough, then I might possibly get drunk. And if I did, I didn't go home. So for about 22 months, I was on what you might call a program of intermittent. Sobriety. That is the absence of being drunk with alcohol all of the time. And during the course of this very uneasy sobriety, all kinds of thoughts went through my mind. And among other things, I began a correspondence with my wife back in New York, full of remorse, very contrite at its beginning, how sorry I was for what I had done to everybody and how much I wanted to make it up to all of you. But during the course of this correspondence and the the, the rebirth of this defensive arrogance of mine, the nature of that correspondence changed little by little until finally I produced a document that my wife still keeps around. It wasn't so much a letter as it was a list of conditions under which I would take her back. (laughs) And it included such items as there shall be no wet stockings hanging in the bathroom. Because I had convinced myself that I, some kind of a rare genius, highly strung and all that, had been beset by all these minor, petty annoyances and had been driven into this state of mind in which I found myself. This is the kind of monumental rationalization that a desperate alcoholic is capable of. Well, after I got sober and after my wife took me back, I still was not the easiest person in the world to live with. I had what we used to fondly call depressions. And I think for a while, I enjoyed them. But my wife actually knew more about these depressions and me than I did. And she wouldn't say anything while I was drowsing around the house and generally making myself miserable and everybody around me. But she'd wait until she figured I'd hit bottom and was starting on the upgrade again. And then she would leave this letter out for me where I could see it. And that's was necessary. I didn't have to be lectured. I knew that once again, sober in AA, I'd gone back to the business of being a little pouty boy. So that letter has... has uh, served a very useful purpose in our home. Let me wind up this, what I used to be like, by bringing you down to the bitter end of the so-called business career. I lost so many jobs that literally I haven't any notion at all of how many I had but I can report on the last one. The last job I had before I came to AA was that of a dishwasher in a chain of cafeterias in New York City at 50 cents an hour. And I lasted a day and a half, and they fired me. And even to my befuddled mind, that was significant because anybody who couldn't hold a 50 cents an hour dishwasher's job with a world war going on had to admit even to himself that he was all through as a breadwinner. And I did. And then I came to a decision, I guess you'd call it, an admission, you might call it, I said to myself, quit kidding. You are a drunken bum, no more, no less. And oddly enough, with the acceptance of all that's implied in those words, I got a great sense of relief because I didn't have to pretend to anybody, notably myself. I could now get on with the business of being a good drunken bum. And in New York, anyone who puts that kind of a label on himself has only one place to go, and that's where I went. I went over to the Bowery. Now, I wasn't really on the Bowery. I wasn't that good of a drunken bum. <clears throat> I just go over during the day and do my drinking there. <clears throat> and get off the place at night. All I was doing really was dramatizing this 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 uh, this decision of mine trying to make everybody including myself feel sorry for me. I discovered as time went on that I was full of this inclination to dramatize myself to be the ham that Gertrude talked about yesterday afternoon. Well, I was in this state when apparently I stepped off a bar stool one day and into a phone booth and called my wife, who had left me now for the third time, at this point, and I wasn't supposed to call her about anything. In fact, the judge had told me I'd better not. But I called her and don't remember doing it. But she remembers, and she remembers the whole conversation. What I said and all I said was, I am sick and I need help. Now, when she told me this, I was very mystified because I didn't know I was sick. And I'd most certainly never asked for this particular kind of help in that particular kind of way. I didn't know where those words came from then. I think I know where they came from now. Because it was that phone call that brought AA into my life. My wife called my mother in Cleveland told her about this phone call, and she said it wasn't so much what he said, but there was something in his voice this time that makes me think this is a little different. So that convinced my mother sufficiently for her to go down the street from where she lived in Cleveland to investigate a very strange goings-on. About four doors down from her house, in a barn behind another house, all of the neighborhood drunks from nearby Huff Avenue were seen to go two or three or four nights a week. They went back in this barn and they did something back there. There were all kinds of theories about what went on. The most popular apparently was that they went back there and had some kind of an orgy or something. But whatever it was, was a big improvement because none of these bums were getting drunk in public anymore and lying around in the doorways in the gutters. So with the kind of courage that perhaps only a mother can summon, she went down and knocked on the door and asked, please, what went on in the barn. Well, they invited her in And she started to tell them about me, and when she finished, they said, well, he sounds like he'll do. (laughs) And if he is indeed an alcoholic, whatever you think of him, and whatever he's done to you, you must give him this one more opportunity. They explained about AA, they gave her a book, a big book, and a phone number and a name in New York City. She got on a train, came to New York, joined forces with my wife, all without my knowledge. They called this number, which was then called the Foundation, it's now the gen- would now be the General Service Office. My mother used the name she'd been given. Could she speak to Bill Wilson, please? When my mother asked for help, she doesn't fool around. But Bobby Berger, who was then the entire GSO staff, explained that Bill was a little busy that day. He wasn't there. But she'd get somebody. She did. She got my sponsor, God bless it. The three of them got into communications and they decided to descend upon me. My life at this point was a very simple equation. It was a bed and a bottle. The bed was a filthy one and the bottle was filled with as cheap stuff as I could get. And I never got very far from either the bed or the bottom. My objective was very simple, as near to 24-hour-a-day oblivion as I could achieve. So I was coming back from a Saturday morning's drinking very early in the afternoon, very sleepy, and I turned into this uh, flea bag where I was in residence, and there stood my wife and my mother. My sponsor hadn't arrived yet. There was no lobby in this joint, you know, just the landing. And I was sure they were in just another hallucination, but they turned out to be real. And I exclaimed in a loud voice that I wanted no part of them. I was out of their lives and I wanted to stay out. But my mother threatened to make a scene, and so we went indoors, up to my so-called room. She explained about this man who was on his way over to see me, and I said I wanted no part of him. I said, what I really ought to do is go out in the hall there and lift the window and jump out and get out of all your life. And she said the right thing. She said, oh, no, let's not have any theatrics now. You haven't got guts enough to jump out of that window. You haven't got courage enough even to see a man who's given up most of his weekend to try to help him. So let's not have any of that stuff. Well, I reacted to this, I guess, as most alcoholics would. I said, all right, show this bum up if he's down there by now. Well, I thought, being a cute alcoholic, that when she went downstairs to get him, I knew a back way out of this joint. But my sponsor was a little cuter than I. He'd come upstairs and he was standing just outside the door and he'd overheard the latter part of this exchange. And when she stepped out, he stepped in. And I always like to recite the vital statistics of my sponsor. He weighed 247 pounds at that point. He filled the doorway. I found out later he played tackle on one of Newt Rockney's Notre Dame football teams. And I, that day, believe it or not, weighed a fast 138. And while I'd been a quiet, drunk, except for my family, I had at least lost enough barroom decisions to know when I was overmatched. So I invited this guy in, and I was determined to get this thing over with as easily and as quickly as I could, because now I'm wide awake again, and I want to get back to the gym room. Well, this man fooled me. He didn't ask any of the questions that I thought he was going to ask. He didn't say any of the things that I thought he was going to say. He sat down on the bed. He had to because that's the only furniture there was in the room. And he began to talk very informally, shall we say, not about me, but about himself. And I encouraged him to go on because this was fascinating. Here was a man who was talking openly about the things that I had suppressed down inside me for years. All of the little things I didn't want quite to admit. Here was a man talking about them openly. Well, he scared me a little because I sensed in, in him a strength that I knew I didn't have. So when he got finished with me, he said, there's a meeting tomorrow night and I'd like to take you if you want to go. And I sort of halfway promised I might. And he said, well, it would be helpful if you didn't get too drunk between now and tomorrow night. And I said, well, I'll see what I can do about that too. So we went downstairs and joined the ladies. And I conned my mother out of five bucks, which is the most money I'd had in a long time, one time. And as I said, I'm wide awake, so I go back to the gin mill because now I have something to ponder, and that's where all drunks go to ponder. I ordered a drink, now I'm drinking, I've got money, so I'm drinking the good stuff, the 15-cent stuff. And I tried to remember what this man had said to me, and I couldn't remember. This was the condition of my mind at that point. But I could not get away from the impact he'd had on me. That I knew, and I could not dodge it, that I had sat in the presence of another human being who understood me inside me. And I was halfway through my second short highball, I think, when I came to, I guess you would call it a decision. It was a pretty childish one, and it was done for all the wrong reasons, and done in the wrong way. But apparently, it was a decision. I said, I'm going to go to that meeting with this fellow tomorrow night, and maybe I'm even going to stop drinking for a while. This was a little Spanish bar in the Lower East Side of New York, and I called the bartender over. He had the very picturesque name of Pacifico, and I asked Pacifico to note the time on the clock and the date on the calendar that he was a witness to a great moment in history (laughs) that that half a drink sitting on the bar was my last drink. And Pacifico told me he thought that was wonderful. And I started to the door and he said, I'll see you
1: tomorrow.
0: (laughs) He, like every other bartender, had heard this many times. Perhaps he'd heard it from me before, for all I know. But much to Pacifico's surprise and mine, that was my last drink. That was well over 19 years ago now. I went to that meeting the next night, and my wife took the courage in her hands and came with me. we met my sponsor and we went into the old 24th Street Clubhouse in New York. And as we walked in, I don't think I'm romanticizing now and looking back. As we walked in, I felt the same sense of identification that I felt the day before talking with my sponsor. I felt a strange kind of sense of being comfortable. Not for the average person. It's it's not strange to feel comfortable, I don't think. But it was for me then to feel comfortable anywhere with anybody. It was so strange that that I had to stop and mark it. So even before I met anybody in AA, other than my sponsor, just seeing him at the end of a corridor, I had this sense of feeling comfortable almost at home. We went back and we got there just about the time the meeting was started, starting. And it was a typical meeting. I looked around me, and in those days, not like here today, there was no difficulty in identifying these people as drunks. They looked the part. And they frightened me. I couldn't understand what these speakers were saying or what it meant. But I could understand what I saw. The look of deep intent in these people's eyes scared me. Because whatever it was that was going on in that room I sense was pretty important. And my common sense told me that if I was going to stay around there, that sooner or later they were going to ask me to do whatever it was they were doing. And I didn't think I could do it. And I needed one more failure like I needed a hole in the head. And I didn't want to try. My feeling was that as sordid as, as it was, I was safely out of the stream of life, and I didn't want to get back in it. I didn't want to have to compete anymore. And when the meeting was over, if it hadn't been for the persistence of my sponsor, I would have run. I would have taken my wife and put her on subway, and I would have gone into the nearest gin mill and that would have been that. Not because I wasn't impressed with what I saw but because I was scared of it. But my sponsor grabbed me and he held on to me and he says, Come on with me. I want you to meet some people. And he introduced me around. And the magic of AA began instantly in my case. And if you're here as a visitor, I hope you will see in what happens from here on in this story of mine not any ritualistic formula, not any panacea, Not any one, two, three, four kind of operation, but the spirit of love being practiced by everyday people, granting me the right and the dignity to be myself and to take in as much of it as I could without being pressured or without being lectured. After the meeting, we put my wife on the subway and then my sponsor and about four or five others took me over to one of the same cafeteria chains, the chain who had fired me about three or four months before. And we sat down around the table and we began to talk. This is a familiar situation with everybody in this room, I'm sure. The interest in a new man or new woman. I was the center of attraction and I loved them. They said they were glad to see me and they looked as though they really were. And now I know... They truly were. They said I was important to them. That's an awful big thing to say to a drunk and steak highwayman. I didn't believe it, but I sure like to hear it. Then, after we all had our coffee, they said, Tell us about yourself. Well, hell, even the guys in the gin mill, even on those rare occasions when I was buying, didn't want to hear this story anymore. But here were people sober, and apparently in their right minds, asking for it. So I pulled out all the stops. I had the violin section going in the background. And I told them my my long, sad tale of woe. I put particular stress on the number of SOBs whom I had encountered during this life that I had been trying to live peaceably and decently, but these people who couldn't or wouldn't understand and who wouldn't let me live the kind of decent life that I wanted to live, particularly employers. Well, these new strange friends of mine listened to all this with rapt attention, you know, with their chin in their hands and all the rest of it, and I thought I was doing a particularly good job. I didn't know then, but I've learned since, that anybody around that table could have stopped me at any point and finished this story of mine for me. They had heard all this malarkey before because every drunk story is pretty much the same. And he tells it pretty much the same, too. But when I finished, they said some rather wonderful things to me. They said, Yeah, that's it. you had a pretty tough time, old boy. Not the worst. Some of us around here have had a little rougher. But that enough, Now, there's some things about that story of yours that you don't know yet. First of all, let me tell you this, that if you told it to us, expecting any sympathy, forget it. That's what you were looking for all these years, probably. And that kind of sympathy could kill you. If you want a little understanding, that we can give you. And if you're willing to accept the kind of understanding we want to give, you can probably save your life. Now there's one more thing about that story that you ought to know, and it's this. Because you've been through that experience, and only because you've been through it, you are equipped in a very special sort of a way to be able to communicate with and get through to the next guy who stands in need of the same help that you're asking for now. So you will find this experience of yours, as bad as it is, will turn out to be very useful. Well, now there's an obvious key word there, useful. I automatically had to think back how long it had been since I'd been useful to anybody and to any degree. And believe me, it went a long way back, even in my estimation. Well, my sponsor in those days was a very active 12-step worker. The war was on. We were putting them in and taking them out of Bellevue Hospital every hour on the hour, it seems to me. Dan was doing 12-step work, but I was being useful. I was saving souls, no less. And furthermore, I was keeping score. You could have stopped me any Sunday afternoon at three o'clock, and I could have told you precisely how many souls I had saved up to that moment. This was my childish notion of being helpful. I had begun the long painful process of becoming an adult at 40 years of age. I didn't know that this was what was happening. I only know that by looking back at it. But nobody gave me any lectures. And finally, after I got over my original embarrassment and fear, I became quite talkative. I objected to all kinds of things in this program. I'd been a writer by profession. I'd been in the advertising business. I'd been an editor. I'd read this book. It was very badly written. And when I got around to it, I I would edit it for them. And these 12 steps, uh, I didn't think too much, they sounded a little bit too abstract for me, but even as they stood, they were too repetitive. And as a good advertising copywriter, I would certainly condense them for them when I got around to it. And the way they ran these meetings was shameful. I, who had helped to organize great sales conventions and written the boss's speeches, Was going to organize a speaker's bureau and a little training program and get out kits. <laughs> Hell, the way they were doing it, they let anybody speak.
1: <laughs> well, I haven't
0: gotten around to editing the book yet And I haven't seen fit to change a single word in the twelve steps. And the meetings are doing all right without any of my messing around with. Actually, and in a professional sense, and I'm far enough away from Bill Wilson now, so it's safe to say this, the book is badly written. But if it hadn't been written in any other way, if it had been edited by a professional editor, it might have been edited right out of existence and you and I might not be sitting here today. That's one of the manifestations of this thing being the word of God. divinely inspired indeed. Well, my process of growing up was very slow. I objected, among other things, to all this God stuff. I'd been over on the Bowery, and during my self-dramatization, well, one of the things I did, of course, quite frequently, was to go in some of these missions and sing and put on quite a show and get myself soup. I didn't really want to I was just feeling sorry for myself, that's all. But I used this as saying, Ah, look, I've seen enough of this nickel-on-the-drum stuff. You guys say that this thing, AA, is, has only one purpose, sobriety. Then you get up in front of that meeting and you preach what I consider to be a 30-minute sermon. I didn't want any part of that. Well, nobody argued with me very much. They just patted me on the back and said, that's all right, son, just stick around. But I guess the day came when I'd said it once too frequently or once too loudly or once too vehemently, I guess. When one of the old-timers came over and put his arm around my shoulder and uttered what I consider to be one of the minor classics among AA utterances. He said, Sonny boy, we do not want to save your soul. All we want to do is ring it out a little bit. If you want your soul saved, you do it. We're too busy with drunks. And in that last bit is, I think, the key to AA success. We are busy with drugs. The saving of souls comes as a result of it, but it's not our primary business. Dr. Angel over here, I'm, I'm sure, will be relieved to know we are not invading his province. I objected to all kinds of things. But this God stuff was really sticking in my crow. Now the man who told me that he didn't want to save my soul didn't make the mistake of trying to wrap up his own personal, very fine relationship with a higher power and hand it to me because he knew me well enough to know that I wouldn't accept it. He had the great wisdom of patience. He was willing to wait. And he knew something that I didn't know. He knew that if I hung around AA on any terms, that sooner or later in my life certain things would happen that I wouldn't be able to explain by any rational means that I knew and that I would sooner or later be driven to the conclusion that there is indeed a higher power at work here, and that I am part of it. These things did happen. Some of them I did not recognize when they happened as parts and pieces of my growing up. One of the episodes I do remember and I was conscious of the fact that this had some significance early in my A.A. childhood. The very first 12-step call that I was allowed to go on myself was actually a, a freak. This was before my family took me back and my money had run out, such as it was, and I was spending the night in bowling alleys. <coughs> which is not highly recommended as a place to sleep. And then I would get out to the clubhouse in the morning, and the gal, whoever the gal on duty was, would let me lie down on on the divan upstairs until the boys started to come in late in the morning. And I was there one morning when this call came in, and it was from a very famous jazz musician who was holed up in a Times Square hotel he claimed to have been NAA in, in Chicago, but he was drunk and disorderly, and would somebody please come up and see him? Well, I didn't know it, but this was about the fifth or sixth such call that Steve had during that week. And, of course, they'd sent some people up, and they'd all come back and reported that apparently all this guy wanted was car fare back to Chicago. But she looked around and saw me, and and must have figured I was expendable, and asked me if I wanted to run up to Times Square and save this soul. And of course I did. I got on my white horse and I went up 8th Avenue, and I charged into the Times Square Hotel. And I found my boy in bed my very first experience of literally seeing somebody who epitomized all of the things that I felt and dreaded as an active alcoholic. He had the blinds drawn, not only that, but he had little pinpricks in the it was an old-fashioned shade covered with little bits of chewing gum or Band-Aids or anything. He didn't want any reality coming into that room. This was the most scared human being I have ever seen. It took me three days and three nights to get him up, dressed, and out of that hotel, down to the subway, and back down to the clubhouse. This happened to be a Sunday. I got him down there and turned him over to my sponsor. And then I started out to Long Island where I've been invited for Sunday dinner with my wife and children. And on my way, I got thinking about these past three days, and it dawned on me there was something different about this and the twelve-step usefulness I had been indulging in. Much to my surprise, for three days and three nights, I had not been indulging in self-aggrandizement. The most important thing in the world, and the only thing, apparently, that had been on my mind, was to get this little guy up out of that bed and safely into somebody's hands. And suddenly, in a blinding flash of understanding, that all of us have occasionally, one of those rare moments where, for that moment at least, we know something all the way down to our toes. We understand it thoroughly. You may lose it in the next instant, but for that minute you understand. This came as a sort of a tableau. My new little pigeon, and me, and my sponsor. Just three of us. Three pretty crummy drunks, and we were. With me in the middle. And somehow I sensed and understood the symbolism of all this. On one side, I knew that I was dependent upon my sponsor. Because every morning, he would call me at the clubhouse, that's why I went down there in the morning, and say, have a good day, kid. I'll see you when I get off work and we'll have dinner. And then he would pay for that dinner out of his $29 a week take-home pay. So I was very conscious of the fact that I was dependent upon him. But now suddenly, over on the other side, it appeared a little drunk who was equally dependent upon me. And for that moment, and for the first time in my life, I had some understanding of what I'm doing here on this earth. I am a link, both dependent and dependent upon. This is my mission in life, both to help and be willing to be helped. As Gertrude was saying yesterday, it's very easy to give It is very difficult to learn how to receive, at least gracefully. Well, there came a time, and it didn't take too long, until by the sheer weight of their number, I had to sit down and count my blessings. When I did, I was willing to admit that, yes, this, this goes beyond human experience and human comprehension. Because even by my own inflated estimates, there is nothing I have done that would justify these things happening to me or coming into my life. Little things, many of them, like a job, first one I'd had in my own business for many years, Like the fact that my wife took me back on probation, and I seemed to be surviving that. But over the years, and this process went on over the years, and I might add is still going on, there were many things that went down deep into my heart and taught me the simple lesson. AA experience offers to all of us. One of them had to do with that first employer that I mentioned who incidentally rehired me and refired me three times in all. The last time because I had lost him a million dollar advertising account. And not only that, but one of the truly great famous names in American industry, a name that any agency would be delighted to have on their client list. And he fired me with a great deal of emphasis that last time. He told me to get out of the building, get out of the city, and if possible, to get out of the country, That he never wanted even to see me again. Well, they told me that uh, after they got sick and tired of all this complaining I was doing, my sponsor took me aside one day and he said, Look, I'm getting sick of you griping about all these people who did you wrong. I think it's about time that you got around to taking the eighth and ninth steps. In case you don't recall what they are, those are the two that have to do with making amends. I said, what do you mean, that I should go back to these people and tell them I'm sorry and try to make amends? He said, yeah. I said, why should I give them that satisfaction of groveling at their feet? And he said, look, Buster, and this is the kind of down-to-earth AA advice I have always gotten every time I have sense enough to ask for it. He said, look, Buster, I am not concerned about what their reactions are. I'm only concerned about you. The chances are that most of these people you've been telling us about, you haven't seen in ten years, they have forgotten you even exist. But you are carrying them around on your back like so many millstones. So I'm not interested in what they say or don't say to you. I'm interested in you going through a process that will get them off your back so that you're free to operate a little more freely and make a little progress in this program. Well, I didn't understand this, but by this time I'd become somewhat amenable and I was willing to, to undertake it so I went home and I made a great list of people to whom I owed amends. And it was a very childish list. I got a sheet of the biggest artist drawing paper I could find, and I filled it. I put down the names of people to whom I might have spoken a cross word as a child, hadn't seen in 30 years, and never expected to see again. When I finished, I showed this list to my wife, and ask her if there's anybody I left off. And much to my horror, she said, yeah. There's one name I don't see here. I said, my God, who's that? She said, your own. What you're going to do is go to these people and, in effect, ask them to forgive you. And I don't think that's going to work until you have first forgiven yourself, and I don't believe you have. So it was from my wife that I got my first understanding of what they mean when they call this a selfish program. That the only thing in this world I can possibly have anything to do with changing is me. And by virtue of any changes I might make in myself, I might influence somebody else. So to the best of my ability to do it, I forgave myself. And I had to keep doing it and keep doing it because the sense of guilt was pretty well ingrained. And I didn't do like any sensible person would do, start with the bottom bottom guy on this list. Oh, no. I had to start with the toughest. I called and asked for an appointment and... He didn't want to see me, but I persisted enough and he said, Oh, all right, come in next Tuesday at 2 o'clock or whatever the day was. And I thought that was fine until 2 o'clock Tuesday came and then I got very scared. But I held on to my nerves sufficiently and I got into his office and I explained that I had found out I was an alcoholic. And I joined a thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I explained what I was there for. I said, I obviously haven't got a million dollar account to replace the one I lost for you. And I guess all I can say is that someday in some way I hope I can make amends. He said that's very interesting. I've heard about this AA but you're the first member of it I ever saw. Tell me about it. Well, in those days, I did not know how AA worked. <laughs> <laughs> and I told him at great length. Now, the passage of three and a half years' time. And my old boss called me on the phone out of the blue, Oh no, I beg your pardon. I gotta get another call in here first. Uh, he called me in my office one day about a week after uh, I'd been in there. And he said, uh, How would I go about putting a friend of mine in that club you belong to? And I told him where he could take his friend to an AA meeting in New York that night. In all probability, the cop on the beat could have told him the same thing. That's all I did. There was no further communication for us. And then the three and a half years passed. And out of the blue, he called me one day and he said, I'd like to have lunch with you. So I was flattered and we went to lunch. And he said, are you
1: uh, at all curious
0: about why I called you? I said, yes, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am. He said, well, let me tell you, my way. He said, last night, an old friend In fact, my college roommate, I was his best man and he was mine, appeared at my house roaring drunk and in more trouble than you ever dreamed of. His wife had kicked him out and so had his father and mother and he would embezzled a considerable amount of money from his own firm and the police were after him. And he got raving drunk And he was a maniac, and he showed up at my house. And while I was sitting on his chest, I called your intergroup office, and they sent out a sponsor, and they took him off to Knickerbocker Hospital. I said, whoa, wait a minute, how would you know about a thing such as intergroup and sponsors and Knickerbocker Hospitals? He said, well, that's what I want to tell you. He said, you don't know this, but I got very interested in AA. And I have been instrumental in guiding 12 other people before this friend of mine into AA. Among them are some very dear friends and some close business associates. They're all doing very well, thank you. And it suddenly dawned on me last night that this whole thing was a chain reaction from that stupid day when you came into my office with that stupid story about making amends. And I thought it was about time that I told you, instead of you being in my debt, I am very much to yours, Because it must be evident to anybody that twelve human lives are worth a great deal more than a million dollars' worth of advertising, or for that matter, the whole damn advertising profession. So that's why I called it the lunch today. I don't know what kind of a price tag to put on that kind of an experience. But I know it went down deep in my heart and helped to make me a better person. I couldn't tell you how, or I couldn't tell you to what extent, but I know it did. I know another one that I have that man's friendship today and, more importantly, his respect. And I wouldn't take $10 million for it. So from a stupid little act that my sponsor told me to do and which I did for all the wrong reasons and very badly and in the wrong spirit, came back in God's own time a blessing on which I am still unable to put a vet. I could tell you about a landlord who had thrown our furniture out in the street and offered to come in and beat me up in the process, and he could have done it. I went to him to tell him that someday, in some way, I was going to pay him the $500-odd in back rent that I owed him. He said, well, that's very strange. That's all written off and forgotten about. Why are you doing this? And I told him my story. He listened with a great deal of interest, and he said, very interesting, I wondered what was wrong, and now I know. Why you were doing what you were doing to that nice little family of yours. Now, after hearing this story, I'm sure I'm not your only creditor. I said, You're sure or not? He said, Well, how much do you owe? I said, I haven't the slightest idea how much I owe. And I'm not at all sure I ever want to find out. He said, Well, when you get to working, and I said, Well, I am working. He said, They'll find you. And I'd like to help. I'm a lawyer. I tell you what you do. You figure out how much you can pay on your debts and send it over to me, and I'll spread it around somehow among your creditors. In the meantime, you make up a list of your creditors and how much you owe them as best you can and bring it back to me. Well, the amount came to a little over $11,000, and I started paying $5.50 a week. I was keeping track of it for a while, but this is no business for an alcoholic. Hell, he can't no patience for that. It's going to take an awful, discouraging, long while. So I gave up, and I just went on paying this money. And as my my salary increased, so did what I paid. And I'd long since lost track of it. I had no idea where I stood, and didn't really much care. It took a long time, but the day finally came. This man called me one day, and he said, Come on over, there's something I want to talk to you about. So I walked into his office, and he lit a piece of paper and let it fall, burning into a big brass ashtray. He said, My boy, you are out of debt. Now, as my old friend Frank Lynch used to say, that may not be A spiritual experience, but it'll damn well do till one comes along. (laughs) It wasn't until recently that I met his secretary on the street one day, and quite inadvertently, she let out the fact that he never did get his money. So I went back to correct this omission, and I said, Hey, I just met Lucille. And she let me know that you never did get your money. She said, of course I didn't get my money. Are you insane? I said, what do you mean I'm insane? That's what I came here for in the first place. Yeah, but stop and think a minute, he said. We did this thing together, and the question in my mind is who got the greater benefit out of it, you or me? This was an SOB, that I was sure I hated Now, I suggest that you can't have that kind of thing happen to you very often and not begin to question your own sense of values and your own appraisal of other people and become at least a little bit willing to readjust some of those values. But perhaps the experience that means most to me had to do with my children. When, when my wife took me back into our home, she couldn't have been more helpful. She patted me on the back. She told me what a fine job I was doing and all the rest of it. But not the kids. They were old enough to remember the degradation and the shame and the physical aspects of it. And they weren't very impressed with the fact that the old man was sober for a little while. And I resented this. And I complained about it. And again, I got the kind of advice in AA that I, as I say, always get when I ask for it. I said, what do I do about these kids? How do I get them to understand what a great thing it is I'm doing here? And they said... Look, we are not wise enough. We don't know anybody around here who is. To know what to tell you to do about the relationship between you and your own children. There's only one place we know to send you for that kind of knowledge. And that's down on your knees. So, I was willing to try even this. Not too willing, but willing. And I came home and I waited until there was nobody around. I got into the bedroom alone. I locked the door and I turned out all the lights and I got down on the floor beside the bed. I felt as awkward and as big as an elephant and very self-conscious. And I prayed. And I'm sure you know the kind of prayer I made. Dear God, make these kids straighten up and fly right. And I got exactly no answer, I thought, to that prayer. My idea was prayer as you say it tonight and you get visible results tomorrow. But I learned through that what we really mean by easy doesn't. That God answers prayers in his time, not in mine. Again, some three years passed after that prayer and I did get an answer to it. My older daughter, by this time, was well along in high school, and she was in her chemistry class one day, and they were talking, I guess, about alcohol as a chemical element, and somehow got on to the beverages from there to the disease of alcoholism, and then the teacher said a few misguided words about Alcoholics Anonymous, whereupon this daughter of mine, whom I thought knew nothing about AA and cared less. Held up her hand, was called upon, she stood up and said, My father is an alcoholic, and he belongs to Alcoholics Anonymous, and what you said about it isn't quite right. She told him. And after she'd finished, she realized what she'd done. She had broken my anonymity at anonymity at the community level, no less. And she told her mother what had happened, and she said, Well, the minute your father comes home, you tell him what you've done. I came home, and the poor kid was standing at the top of the stairs, and this all came out in one great rush of words. But I I got the message, all right. My first impulse was to kick her teeth right down her throat. In that same instance came a realization of what really had happened, that my daughter, in a way that I didn't know about, was able to stand up among her own friends and say, my father is an alcoholic with no sense of shame and with far more understanding than I knew she had. This she'd all gleaned from talking with her mother and from listening, overhearing some AA conversations in our home. From that moment on, that daughter and I had a relationship that goes deeper it is much finer, we are all sure, than any we might have had had I been a so-called normal father. In our family, we believe we went through this whole thing together. We think, as bad as it was, that it was a tempering experience and we've all come out of it better, stronger people. I used to wonder also, what kind of an estate I was going to leave my children? With. And again, I don't think I was too concerned about their future security. I think my motivation really was, what kind of a score is the old man going to leave behind? ...aggrandizement again. The childish, immature alcoholic. But I know now that A.A. has already given my two children, both of whom are married and have their own children now, AA has already given them a heritage far more precious than any that I would ever be able to earn for them.
1: are
0: adults, emotional and otherwise, far better equipped to live in this world of strife and tension than I am at this moment. So if I could say no more than that, I think you would have to agree with me that AA has been worthwhile, and those are the things that give you some measure of what I mean when I say the depth of my gratitude to what AA has done for me and mine beyond my ability to express.